Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's a determined, if dubious, committed, if cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, often wrong but rarely in doubt, exercise in elevated gas baggery that neither rain nor snow nor heat nor gloom of night nor the toxic rantings of the nuthouse right. A president attempting to invalidate a legitimate election and stage an auto coup, complete with an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol, nor... More broadly, and arguably even more disturbingly, the capture of a decent-sized chunk of our political, social, and civic spheres by a cadre of incoherent, insidious, conspiracy-addled, autocracy-craving, authoritarian-worshipping lunatics, hustlers, grifters, nihilists, and nincompoops, none of it, none of it has kept us from our duly sworn duty and obligations, giving you, our listeners, a fresh episode of this podcast week after week after week after week. Maybe not without fail because, you know, hashtag epic fail is one of our many mottos around here, but certainly without a pause. We've been doing that for more than two years, haven't had a break. All of which is to say that I am plum shagged out and desperately in need of some R&R And with the midterm election now comfortably in the rearview mirror in our democracy, amazingly, if I will admit a little unexpectedly, still intact, it seems like a suitable time for the Hell and High Water Home Office to give itself a fucking break. And so for the next few weeks, that is exactly what we are going to do. And we'll see you back here on the other side of the holidays, tanned, rested, refreshed, revitalized, and raring to go, ready to get back to cranking out more tasty content. In the meantime, don't despair. We're not leaving you entirely in the lurch for these weeks. To the contrary, every Tuesday morning, per usual, you will find a hopefully unfamiliar episode of the podcast doing the backstroke in your feed, dropped there by the able AI factotums who will be mining the store while we're away. And while these episodes come over the next few weeks may not be fresh or, strictly speaking, new, They will be piping hot, a carefully curated series of Hell and High Water Golden Oldies, which those of you who've been around from the start may remember, I hope fondly, and those of you who came along sometime later may never have encountered at all. Given our focus on politics these past few months and our desire not to take a dump on your mood of holiday-inspired good cheer, we've decided these encore presentations will avoid that topic like the plague and focus instead on culture, entertainment, technology, and such, with a run of some of our most favorite guests in those realms over the past two years, including this beauty right here, which, whether or not you've heard it before, you will not want to miss. And so with that, we leave you to it with a hearty and heartfelt namaste. Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. We have now been making this show for more than a year, and I have loved every guest that we've had on, but I'm not sure there has ever been one that I've been more completely, utterly, and totally psyched about than the guy we had this week. Once upon a time, way back in 1984, when I was a young and fresh-faced and somewhat debauched college sophomore, a huge Springsteen fanatic, cruising around Evanston, Illinois in a red Nissan Pulsar with a Blaupunk stereo rig that was worth almost as much as the car, 
playing an album called Voice of America by a former member of the E Street Band who'd just gone solo. If you'd told me back then that nearly 30 years later I'd be sitting down with that musician for a long and deep and utterly delightful conversation about his career and life in music, his relationship with the boss, and his passionate and world-changing commitment to artistic political activism, I would have most certainly said three things. Number one, no fucking way. Number two, cool. And number three, well, I guess that means my career turned out pretty oh fucking K. Now here we are nearly 30 years later, and I've done that very interview with that very guy whose brand new and extremely excellent memoir entitled Unrequited Infatuations is being published today, Tuesday, September 28th. And my reaction is pretty much exactly the same as it would have been back then. Number one, no fucking way. Number two, cool. And number three, I guess this means that my career turned out pretty oh fucking K. Because here with us in yet another special, epic, two-part episode of Hell and High Water is the one and the only Stevie Van Zandt. The state of our union is uh, frustrating, uh, a little depressing, but better than it was. I am not going to waste much time at all getting down to business here since Steve Van Zandt is really someone who requires precious little introduction. He's the lifelong best friend, co-conspirator, and consigliere to one of America's greatest artists. He's an inductee with the E Street Band and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As a solo artist in the 1980s, having shed his nickname of Miami Steve Van Zandt and rechristened himself Little Steven and his band, The Disciples of Soul, he released a series of unfairly underappreciated and deeply political records that I love then and love now, and pulled together a tremendous group of superstars from Run DMC and Africa Bambata to Lou Reed, Bob Dylan, Bono, and of course, his best friend Bruce, to create a group called Artists United Against Apartheid that released one of the most seminal and catchy and rocking and bottom line effective pieces of protest music ever created, the song Sun City and led the cultural boycott that, along with the West economic boycott, helped to bring down South Africa's racist apartheid regime, free Nelson Mandela, and put that great man in power, one of the most uplifting and unambiguously positive political developments on the world stage in our lifetimes. And then, as if that wasn't enough, Steve Van Zandt completely reinvented himself in a profession where he had no training whatsoever, acting, taking on the part of Silvio Dante and The Sopranos, and rendering a universally beloved performance in one of the greatest television series ever made. <laughs> and then, on top of all that, Stevie went off and rejoined the E Street Band, reuniting with his pals, healing the bonds that had been broken when he left, and making a shit ton more great music. From the moment our crack Helena High Water booking team snagged Stevie for the show, we all knew that this was destined to be a two-parter. So, settle in for part uno, in which Stevie and I talk about his early musical influences, his relationship with Springsteen as kids, the formative days of the E Street Band, and the extraordinary albums that they made in the 1970s, Born to Run, Darkness on the Edge of Town, and The River, and then the painful breakup that caused Stevie to commit what he describes as, quote, career suicide by leaving the band as it was right on the brink of becoming the biggest rock act in the world. Then come back tomorrow when we'll be dropping part dose in which we talk through Stevie's solo career, his activism, his acting, his reconciliation with Bruce, and his return to E Street, a story that is by turns about regrets, the pain of being persona non grata, the strength it takes to rebuild, and the healing powers of love and friendship and forgiveness, 
a bunch of qualities that Stevie Van Zandt has in abundance and a bunch of lessons that he has learned many times over and that we all could use our own supply of both. As we stare down a world that's constantly presenting us, and I mean you and me and definitely Stevie, with way more than our fair share of hell and high water. to the races here on hell and high water day with little steven miami steve stevie van zandt author of unrequited infatuations here's the first plug the first of many plugs today steve thank you for doing the show first of all but look at this how what do you look at this book what do you think that's a younger steve van zandt for one thing what year was that picture taken not that long ago <laughs> <laughs> look at the look on that that's a smoldering look good lighting good lighting right is that sexy or is that angry Sexy is some something for somebody else to decide. That's me. Uh, usually angry. You know, angry usually is my go-to emotion. I will say super sexy, and I like the anger, so that's a good thing. <laughs> Just tell me what it was like to write the book. I mean, you've been a writer. You've done stuff for a long time, but you're mostly a musician, right? Yeah. Well, how hard did you find it? I find it incredibly hard writing books, by the way. So however hard you found it, it couldn't be harder than I find it. Well, I tell you, you've done some really great ones. Um, you know, it was difficult for a couple of reasons. I mean, just trying to fit everything in. And I had no idea how complicated my life was. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote the book was literally explain my life to me. But once you start getting into it and you're just kind of going chronologically and you're going back, uh, it could have been twice as long, believe it or not. I'm sure. And, and, and then, you know, I know a little too much, so I got to be careful about you don't want to feel like you're ratting out the entire world. Right. <laughs> So it was a little a little scary making sure that I didn't, you know, you want to tell the truth, but not all of it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're in your business, I imagine that you don't want to tell any lies. Not every truth needs to be in the book. That's it. You know, you leave a little bit of spice. I had tried it like 10 years earlier, and I just couldn't figure it out. Couldn't find any kind of closure, even in that chapter of my life. So these last three years, 2017, 18, 19... By bizarre circumstance, I got back in the music business, yeah. reconnected with my life's work, which, you know, I abandoned for literally 30 years. And I had the most productive three years ever. I mean, I, I put out six album packages in three years. Incredible. Two new albums, Soulfire and Summer of Sorcery, and got the Lilyhammer score out and everything. And so that really helped. And then I got some managers. First time, I've never had managers, which plays a major role in the book. <laughs> they brought it up. He said, you know, this is a good time to write a book. And they even suggested the ending of the book. So it just kind of fell together. And it was fun. It's fun going back to the 60s. I, I kind of never left the 60s, to be honest. But it was fun going back to those days because I wanted to make sure it was not only my narrative in this book, but a lot of the history, which I mostly lived through. You know, I only missed the first decade of rock and roll. Right. And, and then some of the craft stuff I've been involved with through the years. So I was hoping to balance those three things 
the history, the craft, and the narrative, and, and had the book end up being more useful than just some kind of music biography. And, you know, the beginning was fun, reliving those days. Yeah. And revisiting people that have died, and a lot of sure. close friends have gone through the years, sure. so it's fun going back and revisiting those guys too. Well, I'll give you a compliment, first of all. And an interesting thing, I think, is that you turned out to be a natural actor, right? You were not, not a trained actor, and, and the, right. your first real acting role was an important role on one of the great television shows in the history of television. And I think that's obviously, you know, there's some natural, innate, God-given gift there to be able to do that. And I would say, you know, for someone who's writing a first book, the book reads great. I, I mean, I love it because it's in your voice. And I mean, look, rock memoirs, like many memoirs, certainly political memoirs, are often dog shit of the worst kind because they're <laughs> ghostwritten and they don't sound like, yeah. just don't have the voice of the person who's writing them. So you can tell they've been ghostwritten, often not ghostwritten well. This book sounds just like you and it has a lot of great stuff in it, but the main thing is it's a page turner. It's full of great anecdotes. It's full of great memories. It does, as you said, toggles between funny stuff, dramatic stuff. You're very self-critical. You're very honest about things which we'll talk about, mistakes you've made. But it, most importantly, and I think the reason why you know I can say to people they should go out and buy the book is if you like Steve Van Zandt, you want to go buy this book because it just sounds like you and you've got a really great conversational voice. So congratulations. No, thank you for that. And, and, and it was the same thing when I started my radio show. You know, it took a couple of tries. You know, it took a couple of months, really, before I actually figured out what character should I be here? You know, what, what's appropriate for this particular medium? And for the book, I got lucky right away because I thought to myself, first of all, I'm going to write every word. Okay, I'm not going to have a co-writer. And I explained that to everybody. And also, I said, I'm going to write it the way I'm going to do the audio book. Right. You know, I'm, I'm going to picture doing the audio book. Right. And then write it like that. And I said to them, look, this is not going to be grammatically correct. Okay, there's going to be <laughs> sentence fragments all over the place and uh, God knows what. Not going to be the Queen's English. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's going to look weird, but if you read it, you're going to hear me, you know. Yeah. And I got, I got really lucky with that right away. Yeah. It's the second half of the book where, you know, the first half is pretty normal stuff. I mean, you know, kid from Jersey makes it in rock and roll and that's all, you know, whatever. <laughs> pretty, normal, pretty normal stuff. Kid from Jersey makes it in one of the most successful rock bands in the history of rock you music. Know, yeah. Just if anything happens every day. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all, no, it, it was a million to one shot. It was. Yeah, yeah but, no but, shit. No, but it's a music story, you know, as yeah, I know, people I know. would kind of expect. And I didn't want it to end up being a music story. I mean, I wanted it to start off that way, but then the second half of the book is where things get interesting, I think. When I leave the E Street Band and suddenly the bigger themes of the book start to reveal themselves. This is not really a book about a guy making it in the music business. <laughs> this is a guy <laughs> the searching opposite. for identity, searching for purpose, yeah. searching for spiritual enlightenment. And, you know, the bigger themes that I think are more universal right. that I, I hope will make the book more interesting to people than just music people. Yeah, and, ju you know. and just the rise of a celebrity. It's like, God, I got really successful. I got really lucky. I made yeah. a lot of money. I mean, that's sometimes a compelling story, but it's better when there's a, a second act and a third act. And, and the book has all three of those things, I think. Yeah. Before we get to the second and the third act, let's talk about the first act a little bit. You know, you talked about the fact that you're a, a 60s kid, right? My crack research team here at Hell and High Water, and they are crack, went and found a couple of cuts that I want to play that are the first record you ever owned. And a record that you once said in an interview was a record that inspired you to get into music. So I want to play these both real quick. The first one, again, according to you, first record you ever owned, Tears on My Pillow by Lil Anthony and Imperials, which is a 1958 record. Let's play it.
So there's Tears of My Pillow, 1958. And then I want to play real quick, just in succession, so we get the flavor here. 1961, Pretty Little Angel Eyes by Curtis Lee. This record, in an interview back in 1985, you said was a record you really inspired you and you listened to over and over and over again and was one of the things that got you interested in actually being in music. So I'm going to play that, and then we'll talk about both of them on the other side. Pretty Little Angel Eyes. Man, those sound like the late 50s and early 60s, and that doo-wop sound, especially in that song, sounds like to me, if I imagine what Jersey was like in 1961, that's sort of what it sounds like, right? Was that like the sound of your childhood? Well, yeah, I think everybody's in my generation, yeah. you know. There was other things in the 50s, obviously, but I, I mostly missed the 50s. I bought that record, I think, after it was already a hit. could have been a, a couple of years later, actually, right. that I found that record for some reason. Tears on my pillow, I mean. But because I, but I mostly missed the 50s. I, I started paying attention to early 60s, really, and started buying some singles. And those two were, were two of them. You were born in 1950, right? So, yeah. you know, about the time you're starting to tune into music, about the age, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, you know, yeah. so when you first started yeah. to, like, maybe buy a record. But I wasn't really making the connection, surprisingly, between the records and the artists that much. Huh. Although I would go see Little Anthony and the Imperials at a skating rink, which is where we saw most rock and roll in those days. And that was the first show I've seen, but mostly not, you know, mostly, you know, you can't sit down in Bristol Stomp and Palisades Park and, and those records. But I, I didn't have a whole lot of interest in going to see the artists for some reason. That would only change when the bands finally came, you know, with, with the Beatles and the British Invasion, February 9th, 1964. Right. You know, by then I was like 13. Right. That would change everything. But before that, you know, I had, I had a couple dozen singles that were very, very um, inspiring in a way, but, but I didn't really connect it to the artist that much. I mean, you just cited the Beatles thing, and I want to hold your hand on the Ed Sullivan Show. I mean, I can't tell you the number of artists. You know this is true from your experience in the business, right? How many people of your age who became important figures in the music business, that changed their lives. You know, like everybody remembers that date. You just cited the date of the Ed Sullivan Show. It's obviously an iconic moment in American history and of the popular culture, at least. I mean... Do you have a very vivid memory of actually the Beatles on Ed Sullivan sitting there mm. in your living room, came on, and your life changing in that moment? Oh, yes. Very vividly. I've compared it to all kinds of things through the years. You know, it's like a spaceship landing in Central Park. <laughs> Only we'd seen spaceships land in the movies, you know? <laughs> this was completely new. <laughs> this was even more radical than that. I can't even express what it's like when you're a kind of a misfit and a, and a freak and you're not really relating to society at all. And you're looking at the options, even at that age, and you're not liking the options that you're being, you're looking at, uh, school or more school with college, jobs, military, you know, I'm too small for sports. And suddenly here's, here's your species, you know, here's your future, here's your gig, you know. And I have to connect it to four months later when the Rolling Stones came because right. we discovered the Beatles halfway through the career and they were extremely sophisticated. You know, they were started in like 57 and gone in 69. And they were just a little too good to actually, you know, look at it and say, oh, I think I can do that. 
you know, right. this amazing harmony and the hair and clothes. Everything about them was, was different and, and new and exciting and perfect. Four months later, the Rolling Stones come and they made it look more casual. They didn't have the perfect hair except for Brian Jones and they didn't have any harmony to speak of. And they were really like the first punk band. And so the way I like to put it is the Beatles revealed this new world to us and the Rolling Stones invited us in. And, yeah. and there was, believe me, five or six other bands that were right there, you know. Sure. The Yardbirds played a huge role. The Who played a huge role. The Kinks. Kinks. You know, the Animals. It wasn't just those two either. I mean, it was. Right. You know, we call it the British Invasion for a reason. Was, every one of them was distinct. Every one of them had an identity. And every one of them added something that became a part of us growing up, along with a whole lot of other stuff like soul music, Motown etc. Yeah. And that's why I refer to it as a renaissance period, and I'm not being hyperbolic about it. When the greatest art being made is, is also the most commercial, you got yourself a renaissance, you know? And, and that's what we were growing up in, man. And we're so lucky. Man. We were just the yes. luckiest generation. God. You, know? you, you think about that, you just just such a profusion of incredible stuff going on. The cultural ferment, really intense. It feels very clear as you describe this period. Obviously, the Ed Sullivan thing we just mentioned a second ago, but as you point out, all of these bands coming in, like just wave after wave, you're getting hit in the face, hearing these new sounds you've never heard before. And it feels like within a year or two, you're like on a track now, right? This is going to be your life. Obviously, hoping to succeed, but succeed or fail, this was the thing for you. There was no other choice. There was no other path. You were on this track. Yeah, I, I, there was no plan B, really, you know? Right. And I think that's what bonded me and Bruce Springsteen. We were the only other guy that we knew that felt that way, honestly. Everybody yeah. else, you know, had more sense. <laughs> you know, they, were, they, were more, they were more realistic. They were more sensible. Yeah. And... As soon as they had a choice, they took it, you know, go work for your father or go to school or, or whatever. For us, there was no plan B. And I think we really needed each other to strengthen that sort of, you know, if you're the only freak around, you kind of start to, you have to wonder, maybe I got a problem here. But if there's two of you and you're like, well, okay, maybe there's a shot, you know, maybe we're onto something, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was very, yeah. very, a very, very important bonding at a very important moment. I think that's why we're still best friends to this day. So you guys met in, in 1966, around 66, you say in the book. And, you know, you spent the better part of a decade from 66 to, you know, Born to Run comes out in 75. So the better part of a decade where you guys are both kind of yeah. kicking around the Jersey Shore and you have bands that you're in separate from Bruce and he has bands that he's in separate from you. You live together for a little while in an apartment. You're learning about music together. You're dreaming the dream together. And, you know, your work lives are kind of, you know, entangled in a bunch of ways before it all kind of congeals around the E Street Band. You know, you guys had this period, this very kind of fertile period where you're kind of loose at loose ends, lives intersecting, breaking apart, coming together. Just talk about that and that period of kind of how you went from meeting each other as teenagers to eventually ending up, you know, together in the E Street Band. I mean, in between, you guys were in, I don't know how many bands together, but you were in a, like a bunch of bands together, right? We were in, um, I don't know, three, like five or six bands together before that. Yep. We'd have a different band every three months. Right. Starting in the late 60s, we both moved to Asbury Park because of this upstage club, which was just completely unique. Yep. Nothing existed like that before or since, yeah. open from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. for kids, <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> Once we got to Asbury and met a lot of other musicians, you know, we're still trying to find our identity. And the schooling for one's identity would continue, arguably, for Bruce, right into Darkness on the Edge of Town, you know. Yes. And yeah. for myself, it would come later. But um, you're schooling yourself on street level. And doing the oldie circuit for me was a big, big part of my schooling. Right. But, you know, you, you just, you know, you'd have a country band one week, you know, then you'd, right. you'd have a psychedelic band, a soul band, and you're just kind of taking a little of this, a little bit of that, and building an identity. And that's how it went. But then finally, when, once he got signed, yeah. things started to become a little bit more official and a little bit more formal. And I would join his band on the third album tour. Right. At a point where, you know, he was in big trouble and, about to be dropped by his record company. His first yeah. two records hadn't done anything. And I left Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes at that point, which I'd started with Southside. And we had kind of revolutionized the entire bar band scene. Man. You know, we didn't realize it at the time. Right. But we did. And I was just kind of getting bored, and I wanted to get out of town. And he wanted to put the guitar down for a minute, you know. And we only, he only had seven gigs booked. That was it. You know, and that was going to be like the end. Yeah. And like I say, I, I went for seven gigs and stayed seven years. But it was an education. You know, you, you're constantly searching for that identity. And that would continue into the late 70s. I'm going to play a little bit of 10th Avenue Freeze out in a second. But let me ask you one question right before that. I learned a lot in reading this book. One thing I, I had no idea, if anybody asked me, again, I've been to a lot of shows, a lot of Bruce Springsteen shows, a lot of Bruce Springsteen Easter Band shows, a lot of solo shows of yours. I had never knew the story of the bandana. And where it came from and i that it was connected in some way to a car crash which is what you write about in the book early 70s right yeah but it wasn't just a fashion i mean you talk about how zorro was a favorite character of yours and there was some element of that but you had a car wreck and and you ended up wanting to keep your head covered uh and bruce sort of said i guess according to the book sort of said well you must you might make us a statement yeah I, I had been wearing a bandana off and on just for fun and the hair never really grew in right and i tell you the truth i mean it, it really came in handy when i started acting yeah. You know, because that was a wonderful sort of extra little bonus because no matter what hair you see me with, it's different. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and, and, you're, and you're able to, you know, more readily accept whoever the character is because of that. That was an important thing to me when I started acting. I know we're jumping ahead here, but it was an important thing that people didn't look at me and say, oh, I saw him play in Cleveland last month. You know, I thought the acting thing was going to be my future permanently, exclusively. You know, I, I was done with music completely by then, I thought. So I, I was ready to be an actor forever. And I wanted to make sure that people accepted me as an actor. And I, I got very lucky with that also. People usually only define you once in your life. And I got two different distinct careers that were accepted by an audience. And that's very, very rare and very, very lucky. But I think what, what helped was just looking so different that people were able to accept that character as whoever he was. Nothing helps better in a good acting career than a great wig. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> I'm thinking about moving into that world. I, every once in a while, I look at the Silvio Dante wig and I think, I wonder how that would look on me. Hey. Um, I haven't yet taken the plunge, but I might go there. So we get to you just talking about that moment, perilous moment for Bruce's career at that point, a solo career. It's born to run when you end up joining what would be the E Street Band. And the song 10th Avenue Freeze Out, where you end up doing the horn arrangement on that song. And that is kind of where you get locked in fully, I guess, and join the band. I'll let you tell the story in a second. But just when I hear that, I mean, my God, you can't even talk about Born to Run at this point. So many words have been spoken. Nothing that I can say will uh, increase anybody's understanding of the record because it's like one of the most discussed records in the history of the history. But I can remember buying it. I was nine years old then. I, I remember bringing it home and I remember taking it out and putting it on. And I loved this song 
Thunder Road, obviously now more iconic in, in some ways than 10th Avenue Freeze Up, but the horns are fantastic in this song. And let's play it because this is you, like the first real Im- imprinting of the Steve Van Zandt vision on what would be the E Street Band right here on 10th Avenue Freeze Up. a guitar guy become of such a great horn arranger where does that come from yeah i don't know you are what you like you know and you become what you like we grew up in a very interesting time when seven or eight rock and roll tv shows were on every week i mean can you imagine a world like that (laughs) i'm not exaggerating i can name them and what was interesting you know the rolling stones would come on and then marvin Gaye would come on the kinks would come on and then curtis mayfield would come on Almost every single one of those rock shows had that soul element integrated. So we grew up with that rock and soul very much side by side. And at a certain point, we tried it. You know, we, like I said, we had a different band every three months yeah. in a different genre, really, yeah. a different yeah. subgenre. And the last band we had, when I finally talked Bruce into using his name, he didn't want to use his name, was well, the Bruce Springsteen band. And we had horns in that. And that came partially from our love of soul music, but also partially from the last trend of the 60s. And I go through the trends because we were very much a monoculture throughout the 60s. But the very last trend was that Southern soul trend, really epitomized by the Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour and movie. Right. And boy, they never showed that film, man. I don't know why. You never see that film on TV. I've never seen it. And it is just fantastic. It's a Joe Cocker tour with Leon Russell as the music director, yep. you know, at, at the main yeah, yeah. music guy. And at that point, that whole Southern girl singers and horns and that whole rock meets soul meets gospel really started by the right. Delaney and Bonnie duo had really started this whole thing, I think. And they all kind of came from there. But, you know, it, it became the very last trend. You know, you could even hear it on, on, on Rolling Stone's Exile on Main Street album. One of my favorite live albums is Van Morrison's It's Too Late to Stop Now, which is 74. And the horns on that record are fucking incredible, right? And it's yeah. like a, sim- it's a similar thing. I mean, if you go back and listen to them and the stuff that he did in the 60s, you, it was not horn based. It was much more simple and stripped down. And all of a sudden, the horns are there on a lot of those arrangements. I mean, obviously, he'd done Moondance and stuff, but that album has incredible, incredible live horn arrangements that are great. Yeah. And that's roughly the same time as a 74, you know? Yeah, fantastic stuff. And uh, around that same time, the band would join up with Alan Toussaint. You know, sure. Alan Toussaint was a big influence on me also. Yeah. Uh, his stuff that he was doing in New Orleans. Right on the very first Jukes record, I, you know, we took Lee Dorsey out of retirement 
and I wrote a song really for for Lee Dorsey as much as for Southside Johnny. And <laughs> That's uh, awesome. but that was all Alan Toussaint based. So all that was happening in that right. seventy one to seventy five sort of period. When we started the Jukes, we had gone to see Sam and Dave. Me, me Southside, Bruce, maybe Gary had gone to see Sam and Dave at some local club. Yeah, and they were still absolutely phenomenal. In a small club, you know, we we're just a couple of feet away from them. I mean, oh my God, what a great experience that was. And so we decided, okay, well, that's, that's what we're going to do. Me and Southside are going to be the White Sam and Dave. And we're going to have a soul band, but, you know, I'm a rock guitar player, so there's going to be a rock element to that. And without really being too conscious of it, we decided that rock and soul combination was going to be our thing. Yeah. And it became very uniquely our thing. And it would really revolutionize the sound of what bar bands did, because suddenly bar bands had to have that soul element. Born to Run, you know, as I said a second ago, almost impossible to talk about now without sounding either cliched or like just going over ground that everybody's ever gone over. I guess the main question I have for you about it is you just talked about, again, perilous time for Bruce. You know, you made your contribution. You got locked in on the band. The band gets called the E Street Band, which you did not like. Is that right? Yeah. You tried to talk Bruce out of the E Street Band. What did you not like about the name of the E Street Band? I just thought it was boring. It just didn't have any resonance. And it was a street of the keyboard player, Davey Sanchez that was no longer in the band. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I'm like, you know. What, what the fuck? <laughs> and I wanted to use a name that he had come up with. I think it was in Backstreet. So one of the songs, he had a, a name of a gang, the Duke Street Kings. I thought that that should be our name, man. You know, yeah. and I still think that, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I would change it tomorrow. tomorrow. Okay? <laughs> I mean, you know, Bruce Springsteen and the Duke Street Kings. Are you kidding better. me? You better, know? better, better. The, and the E Street Band. You know, it's like, yeah, what the fuck? Anyway, so, you know. <laughs> I love that. It seems to have worked okay. I guess he tells you, like, you know. Yeah, well, you know, you become the name. You know, the name, the name becomes you. As, totally. as I've said many times, I mean, you know, the worst name in the world is the Beatles. So, you know. Right, right. And you look around. Somebody's like, man, Strawberry Fields. That must be incredible places. You're like, I went to Strawberry Fields. Not that much going on there. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's like if you ever go, people go on those like, Beatles tours in England and they go and they see the place and they're like, what's the, all the fuss about? Penny Lane. This is not that big a deal. You're like, it's not the points, not the, the, the lane's that great. It's the song, you know, right? But so. The one really cool thing yeah. is in that graveyard there, yeah. which I think is near Strawberry Fields. There is an Eleanor Rigby. Yes. And Paul had never seen it. Stole the name. Paul had never been there, you know? Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. That's the one really cool, freaky thing. Yes. Because Paul would freely admit it. Sure, sure. They're not trying to hide anything. And he said, I've never been there, never been in that graveyard, never seen that headstone. And there is somebody there named, named Eleanor okay. Rigby. So. Okay, that is that is super weird and uh, almost <laughs> totally inex almost inexplicable. I believe him. He already has no reason to lie, but that's a very weird thing. Yeah. So here's my question about Born to Run, right? So it gets done, and you're sitting there again. Perilous time for him. Next thing you know, he's on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and, and you guys are like really off to the races. When you heard the finished record, which had been you know in, in gestation for a long time, when you heard it, did you think this is special? Yes, I did, especially because the recording of it was so bizarre, you know, done in pieces and done at the worst time ever to record, which was the 70s. So as it's being recorded... You know, I just remember laying on the floor there during 10th Avenue, and, and I was there for the string section of Jungle Land, and I was there for the really cool trumpet and bass playing uh, meeting across the river. That was really a highlight for me. Right. But mostly, 
it just didn't sound good when it's being recorded in those days because everything was padded, you know? And the, the concept was keep everything separate, take all the excitement out of the recording, and then the engineers would put it back in in the mix, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is just, you know, <laughs> really stupid, really fucking stupid. But they would do that. And so when you heard the final record, you know, it, it, it sounded good. It did. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, I, I thought it was very special. I thought it was a huge, huge, huge leap from his first two albums, even though I liked those also. But just conceptually and, um, you know, he just had to rise to the occasion and say, like, okay, whatever I was doing on my first two records is only going to go so far. I need to do something really, really different here in order to survive right. and flourish. So suddenly everything changed for the Born to Run record and persona and tour you know right i joined at that point and if you look at those first couple of records his band looked like beach bums you know they got shorts on and bare feet <laughs> and you know and suddenly we're in suits you know what i mean like you know now, yeah. now he's developed this whole persona as a front man right that we thought was going to be permanent and turned out not to be and the record itself was much more produced in a more formal way so right. really everything changed in a way for that third record and you know it, it wasn't the hit that everybody thinks it is but it certainly was the beginning of a whole new adventure you know people who are familiar with this album in the moment you know bruce being on the cover of time and newsweek and and the famous phrase of john landau saying i've seen rock and roll's future and his name is bruce springsteen I mean, Landau was a critic, right? But also was kind of a collaborator, right? So at that point, he was totally independent of Bruce when he made that judgment. And the he, judgment was what started the collaboration. Yes. They met by Bruce reading that review outside the club and John walking up to him saying, you like that review? You know, <laughs> what he was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then John was like, well, that's me, you know? Well, it's one of the most iconic things ever written, I'd say, in the annals of rock criticism. We don't really even do rock criticism anymore in America. You can think back to those days when you were that young, Steve, when a great review in Rolling Stone or a great review in Cream could break a band, you know? And now it's like, there's obviously millions of words written about music all the time, but mm. the power of the institution doesn't exist anymore. I mean, whatever it is that makes music work now, it's not like critics you know, Bob Criscow or Grail Marcus or someone kind well, of writing it, a great review. It doesn't work now. It doesn't work now. That's <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying. The, the business no one cares. is over. It's over. Yeah. You could say not yeah. only does the criticism doesn't work, but the business itself is a mess. Yeah. No, it's over. I'm going to ask you one quick question before I take a break. I want to ask you to weigh in on one crucial question. This question, which tore up the world of the internet. There was a lot of discussion of this just a couple months ago. Mary's dress sways or Mary's dress waves? <laughs> I don't know what they were talking about. You know, I uh, I, I stayed out of it, but I'm gonna drag you in right now. Come on, like you were there at the very beginning. What are you? What was he singing? I'm a waves guy. Okay, look, it, it was in the gatefold when I was a kid. I opened that record up. It said Mary's dress waves. The the, the published it, it, version. It, it, Mary's it dress says, waves. It says waves. Right. I don't, I, yes, I don't Mar know what that even means. The, I mean, the, obviously, it's it sways. I, I don't even know what. Mary's dress waves means <laughs> when this came up. I'm like, you guys got to get a life. Are you kidding me? Who gives a shit? But obviously it sways. I don't know what else it would be. I guess it was written wrong. Is that the Yes, idea? I think that is apparently the, the, the claim. And I believe Bruce tried to clear it up the other night on stage too. Landau came out and said, it is sways. That's what they, <laughs> that's what they say. Although on the, the printed lyrics originally said Mary's dress waves. 
So you, oh. I just wanted to wonder whether you heard it differently. You think it's Swayze. You always thought it was Swayze? Is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, yes, obviously. Obviously Swayze. Yeah. I'm not sure a dress can either wave or sway, frankly, but, uh, you know, I mean, a f- flag can wave. Why can't a dress wave? <laughs> I am not going to get into this with you. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair, fair enough. Coming back, uh, we have little Steven, Miami Steve, Steve Van Zandt, author of Unrequited Infatuations. That's a two, only a two-word title, but those are both long words. It's like a lot of letters for only two words. Uh, it's Unrequited Infatuations. Very, very strong. It sounds like Marcel Proust wrote that book. Uh, we'll talk about a bit more on the other side here on Hell and High Water. So we're back on Hell and High Water here with Steve Van Zandt, and we're at this place where we're talking here about the post-Born to Run period. You know, amazingly, from that period to when you leave the band, it's about seven years and some kind of incredible records. I don't think I ever knew that of that work, Born to Run, Darkness, The River, Nebraska, Born in the USA, right? These are the records that you're on, the official albums, studio albums, right? The River is your favorite of those? I believe the book says that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was... Very unhappy with the sound of Darkness on the Edge of Town at the time. I know we, we've all gotten used to it now, and it's fine, you know. It, but at the time, I just really didn't like it, and I thought, we're so much better than what this thing sounds like. So I talked to Bruce about this, and he asked me to co-produce The River. Yeah. Uh, so I made sure we found a studio that was more live and an engineer who was fast. I did a little research, you know, checked out Bob Clear Mountain, checked out the power station because I wanted the, you know, if I was going to co-produce a record, I wanted the experience to be fun. I mean, because the previous two albums were literally torture. I, I mean, they were no fun at all. And I'm, I'm big on like, it's the journey, not the destination kind of a guy. Yeah, you know what I mean? I'm sure. like, I, I want to live every day. You know, I don't go on tour and cram as many shows in as I can to make the money and then go home and live my life. You know what I mean? I want to experience every single day in a positive way. And sure enough, we got lucky and found the right room, the right engineer. And the very first thing we recorded, you know, one of the very first things was, I think Roulette was first, but Hungry Heart was pretty early. Yeah. And, you know, in those days, you know, we would record and Bob was extremely fast. He could mix it the same day. And suddenly we had this fantastic sound going, you know. And so the fact that, he would write just as many songs for The River as he did on Darkness, which is, I'm talking 50 or 60 songs, you know, right, which is right, a right. lot. But this time, it wasn't every one of those songs was a lost argument, you know, that didn't end up on the record maybe, but yeah. they were just, it was, it was a joy to go to work every day, you know, and that's how it should be. That, that's how life should be for everybody, you know. We can mm-hmm. talk about that someday too. But it was certainly the case for us. So, you know, sometimes, yes, the end result, of course, counts, but it's also sometimes the process, man, you know? I'm sure you had the same thing with one of your TV shows or one of your books, you know, where the process was just more fun. So, you you know, you remember it more fondly. But in this case, it's more than that because it really was not only the process being fun, but also probably the closest thing to Bruce's soul singing style, which he doesn't use very often. But, you know, his soul music stuff is on that record. And I love that part of him. You know, he very rarely goes there, but he's one of the great white soul singers of all time. And, you know, there's more evidence of it on that record than than any other, I think. 
you write in the book about not only did darkness have, or you didn't like the way it sounded, but it also was a pretty dark period for the band, right? You describe it as everyone in the band being on drugs, going a little, I mean, over the line on on substance abuse in that period. It sounds like that was a pretty wretched record to make. It's some of his best material. Uh, that that yeah. was so, yeah. so frustrating about, you know, the sound of it to me. Those songs would become the staple of the touring sets, you know, of the show. Yeah. But what I discovered only in writing this book, which was interesting to me, I must say, yeah. I finally actually analyzed what was going on then and, and hadn't at the time, you know, aside from the, you know, group almost breaking up and yeah. running out of money and the lawsuit and the drugs and Bruce and John going and talking for hours in the middle of the session. Not after yeah. the session, <laughs> in the wow. middle of it. Yeah. And I didn't understand it at the time. And all I was concerned with was trying to make a good record. And yeah. I was very involved with the arrangements at that point. And just focusing on the music. That's all, that's all I was really focused on. And analyzing it now, so many years later, I realized that all those discussions were not some kind of self-indulgent um, discussions or fear of success or whatever way you want to psychoanalyze it. Right. Those discussions were actually extraordinarily important because, and I just realized it now, he was, again, changing his persona completely, completely. Right. And this is tricky business, man, you know, especially after you've just had a pretty successful, you know, it wasn't a, Big hit, but it was a huge, huge identity introduction, if you will. Cover a time in Newsweek in the same week when that meant something, when that meant a lot. That's yeah. a big moment for for, yeah. for an act. I mean, I, that hasn't really ever happened in the history of of, of rock and roll. So yeah, it's yeah. a big moment for him. Coming yeah. off a big moment. So now you're kind of introducing yourself to the public, really, for the first time. Yeah, and and you, of course you're like, fall in love with me, please, right? Which they kind of do. You know, not on a mass yeah. scale yet, but pretty significantly, you know? Yeah. And that persona, and you know, you know, we could describe it all day long, but that underdog Jersey kid puts a girl on the back of a motorcycle and roars off into the sunset. That yeah. old wild one, you know, Marlon Brando, James Dean, you know, all of that, right? And it, it was really cool and really successful in its way. And he's saying... You know what? I know I asked you to fall in love with that guy, but that's not me. <laughs> me. <laughs> it's not going to. And I'm going to be an entirely different guy from now on, you know? Yeah. And he decides I'm going to be the guy who doesn't leave town. I'm going right. to be the guy who stays. Yeah. And I'm not going to be not relating to my father anymore. I'm going to be relating to my father. And speaking for my father, in some ways becoming my father, and, you know, defending the working class, not running away from it anymore. That whole Everything. And, and, and rural, small town rather than big town in New York City and that whole 10th Avenue freeze out, you know, a complete 180 degree change in identity that yeah. he stayed with ever since the way yes. and for some reason i i missed all that at the time you know right, right. you're just trying to make good records man that's yeah. the extent of my intelligence you know right. my consciousness and i just kind of discovered it as i'm writing this book you know it's kind of analyzed it for the first time and said well, well wait a minute you know that's really, really a big, big, big moment at the time. And you all are just kids that's the other thing all the stuff you're talking about such a big seminal fundamental change you're all like kids 
You know, these are well, you know, race under third. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't mean 30, children, yeah. but I mean, under yeah. 30, you're still like, that's a, a lot to be coping with for people who are just barely in adulthood in some ways and, and who haven't had anything like this level of success until a couple of years earlier. But it was old for rock and roll, though. I mean, we, we just made it in the door. You Fair. Know, before that Fair. door shut because Fair. you had to make it by 25 or you were done. I'm going to ask you about the breakup in a second, but before I do that, I'll say one one last thing about this period, right? So, you know, these records, all four of these records, the records I just mentioned, iconic albums, fantastic, brilliant. Everyone thinks they're masterpieces. They are. Yeah, the thing I learned in your book was that you had encouraged Bruce to, when he had Nebraska and born in the USA coming out, to kind of encouraged him to make the hard deal with the record company, basically say, you got to put out Nebraska first before putting out Born in the USA because it would uh, it was not going to be as commercial a record and that, you know, encouraging him to make sure that, that record got out and that it got out ahead of what you knew was going to be a different kind of record, obviously, in Born in the USA. And just talking a little bit about that, it's a very business savvy thing to have encouraged. I think obviously the right thing to do, if you think about what would have happened if Nebraska came after Born in the USA, it would have been a very whiplashy thing for people to try to receive Nebraska after Born in the USA. No, well, that's that's true. But the business savvy part would have been John Landau having to sell it. Either one who had to sell it. My thing was strictly artistic. You know, he played it for me as a demo. Yeah. And my big contribution was saying, this ain't no demo. You know? Nebraska, that is. Yeah. Yeah. He's playing this thing for me. And I was completely transported to the Thunder Road of Robert Mitchum, you know and the serial killers in South Dakota. And, you know, it was um, amazingly cinematic. You know, all, all singers are actors. Yeah. But this was another level of acting for him. Because, you know, he had become these crazed characters and done so in a very, um, where you're not self-conscious about it because there was no intention for it to be released. So... Right. It was kind of more open and no no inhibitions whatsoever. You know, yeah. just kind of doing it for fun and going to play it for me in the band. So there was no sort of uh, inhibitions about what he was doing at all. It was all very, you know. And the result of that was this incredibly intimate, bizarre record, unlike any other, you know. I mean, it reminded me of the old field recordings. Sure. Um, Folk, you know, sure. the folk and blues field recordings. And I just felt very strongly. I'm like, this has got to come out as it is. Yes. You know? And he was like, what? <laughs> you know, what do you mean? And eventually, you know, they all came to that conclusion. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it would have had to come before Born in the USA. It would have been a little trickier afterwards, probably. That would have been a very different thing to hear that record again in the wake, I think, of Born in the USA. Although, in a lot of ways, anything after Born in the USA was obviously Tunnel of Love felt so strikingly different from Born in the USA, too. You know, you break up in 1982, and it's as we get to the second part of your life. This is a big moment, and you talk about it a lot in the book. I said before that you were unflinchingly honest about it. You say in the book throughout that you committed career suicide. You've gone back and talked about this over and over again. But before we get to kind of the analysis of where it led you and, and the trajectory in your life and in your work, just talk a little bit about what led to it. And, you know, it's a story that I think you tell in the book really for the first time, you know, in, in 1982, you guys were really on a roll at that point. Although Bruce, the Eastry Band had not yet peaked, obviously, but you're on the cusp of extraordinary success and you decided to walk away. So I just give you the floor to tell the story. You say in the book that you had really, you've only had three arguments with Bruce in your life. And this was the first one. And, and you leaving the band was the really result of the first big argument you guys ever had. So I give you the floor to tell the story of your decision to quit. 
it was a sort of a perfect storm of a number of elements coming together at that same time. I think, you know, the feeling of becoming successful was a bit of a shock. I think, I mean, I can't speak for him, but I think that level of success was something you, you sort of dreamed about vaguely, but here it, here it comes. And I think there was some element of wanting to be untethered from the past on his behalf to some extent. And I was very much the past. At the same time, I'm becoming obsessed with politics. And I'm feeling like, geez, somebody should be talking about this stuff that I'm discovering. As I studied our foreign policy since World War II. Yeah. And I felt you know, that I had been giving really good advice for a long time, and I wanted to be an official part of the management team. Right. And he was just not comfortable with that. And at the same time, I was offered a solo deal and exploring what would that mean artistically for me. And I, in fact, did two albums before the final sort of break actually occurred. I did two entire albums before Born in the USA came out. I had produced, I don't know how many, uh, 10 or 11 songs. They had then kept working for two years to do an additional three songs. And those three, I, I, I didn't have anything to do with. So I thought the best way to preserve the friendship was to leave. Right. Which worked, by the way. Hence, <laughs> we're still best friends yeah. to this day. But, you know, at the time, it was a little, little awkward and not feeling quite like it used to. So a combination of my own feelings and his feelings, and like I say, a perfect storm of elements at that time. Right. And so I, I left. Yeah. This is you writing in the book, Unrequited Infatuations. I felt like I had been giving him nothing but good advice and had dedicated my whole life and career to him without asking for a thing. I felt I'd earned an official position in the decision-making process. He disagreed, so I quit. 15 years, we finally made it, and I quit. The night before payday, I was fucking with destiny big time. Or was it fulfilling it? You say, you know, throughout the book, we're going to talk about this in a second, but you, know, you say throughout that in retrospect, it was clear you shouldn't have left. And you say that multiple times in the book, but you said it was a perfect storm, right? So like, was there like a build up to this? Was there like disharmony between the two of you? Or was there a moment that it snapped? I, I mean, I'm not put, I'm trying to put words in your mouth, but was, was it an emotional thing? Did you guys have a big giant actual fight where you really had it out with each other? Or did you kind of drift apart? What was the kind of tenor of it? I mean, you guys have been such close friends, best friends for so long. I guess it'll imagine as you describe it there and a lot of those words you write with again i said before in your voice in this very kind of spare way about this but a lot of those words feel kind of loaded like there was a lot of emotion behind them at least that's the way it reads on the page so i guess i'm trying to imagine what it was like for you in that moment to be making this decision it feels like momentous it was momentous and probably the level of how momentous it was probably didn't really hit me for a minute because I remember, I remember it really hitting me on that flight to South Africa that I had just blown my life, you know? So at the time, it was emotional and it was a fight. You know, you're both upset, you know, you're both, you know, raising your voices. And you're fighting, which would happen on, on all, all three of our fights. You know, they were pretty right. much knocked right. down, dragged out. Yeah. Not physical, <laughs> of course, but right. they were serious. Screaming uh, was <laughs> ensued, you know. And, and um, so it was mostly anger and emotional and right. not, 
looking at how am I affecting history here? <laughs> you're not thinking right. about that. Sure. I mean, one gets the sense that, that, that being friends with Steve Van Zandt is like when you're in a friendship, you're all in. Like you, and you kind of suggest this in the book that you are a passionate guy. And if you're in the friendship, you're in all the way. And so the tumult sometimes attends to your friendships because of the fact that you are as passionate about them as you are and as honest about them as you are. And there's not lukewarm relationships, right? And certainly your relationship with Bruce was not a lukewarm relationship. There was a lot of yeah. heat in that. Yeah, I have trouble compromising in general, you know, <laughs> so, um, but, but pretty early on in life, I realized I mostly try to let the other person define the friendship, you know, I'm not good at doing things halfway, yeah. either you're my friend or, or you're not, you know, pretty much. And if you are, I will do anything for you and I don't have to try. I don't have to make an effort to do that. That's just what friendship is to me, you know? And that's the whole band thing. That was my attraction to the whole band thing. Yeah. It's a bunch of friends all yeah. working towards a common goal or creating something interesting, you know, or hanging out together. And just that whole friendship family thing was directly related to that sensibility of what a friend is, you know? Absolutely. And I've never been in a band, but when I think in my kind of romantic mind's eye of what would be the best thing about being in a band, it's like being in a gang. And the best thing about being in a gang, other than getting to have cool nicknames and, and wear a lot of black leather is, you know, you're just basically doing a bunch of shit with all your best friends. So I totally hear where you're coming from, Steve. And I actually would like to delve more deeply into, into the whole band relationship thing. But first, uh, we have to take a quick break because uh, the demands of capitalism are pressing down on my back, on my neck, on my head. So we're going to take that break. We're going to sell some soap flakes and then we'll be back on Hell and High Water with the one and only Stevie Van Zandt. And we're back on Hell and High Water with the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, Miami Steve Van Zandt, little Steven, Stevie Van Zandt, according to the book cover of his new book. And before the break, Steve, I said I, I wanted to discuss your relationship with the E Street Band, especially with Bruce, after you left, before we then dive into your solo career after that. So I want to play a song that was hugely resonant for a lot of people at that time. You'd left the band. Born in the USA was huge. People were listening to it. This was not one of the first and the big hits from the album, you know, Dancing in the Dark, the first single. Everybody was obsessed with that song and the video on MTV. Born in the USA, of course, a huge anthem that drove a lot of the big stadium shows from that tour. And this song kind of tucked in there part of a trio of songs that were sort of thought by a lot of people, and I, I don't think wrongly, to be about you and Bruce and your relationship. And this was the one that was the most kind of bittersweet of those three. Uh, this is a song called Bobby Jean that is kind of about not just your friendship with Bruce, but about at that moment about the two of you going your separate ways. So let's listen to a little bit of Bobby Jean and then we'll talk about it on the other side. I don't mean to be like get mawkish and emotional and sentimental about this, but I just can't imagine what it'd be like to have had happen what happened with you guys. You left the band. 
there on this tour, a world tour, a giant world tour. I mean, I just remember the photographs. I was in England in the summer of 1985 studying abroad. And in that European leg of the tour, I just remember the photographs all the time and the video of the band playing these giant outdoor stadiums all over Western Europe. And there's Bruce singing this song. It's a very emotional song. It's about you too. Do you remember what it felt like to be in that place, suddenly no longer part of the E Street Band, watching your best friend achieve this level of success that was greater than anything you'd ever seen or that you could have imagined? And on top of that, out there singing a song almost every night that he played, that was this very powerful, emotional, bittersweet song about the state of your friendship. Again, it's a kind of one of those things that for most people, it's kind of unfathomable to think about what that must have been like. I wonder whether you have a memory of how you felt at that moment when all that was playing out. I didn't think about it, you know? I, I didn't think about it much. At that point, I was focused on other things, you things. know? Right. I'm on the floor under a blanket going into Soweto, you know? So I didn't really think about it. I wasn't really conscious of the song. We had, you know, reconciled before it came out because we were talking about those last couple of songs he only played me two of the three. He didn't play me that one. He played me Dancing in the Dark and No Surrender. Dancing in the Dark, which was on the record, and No Surrender, which wasn't. It was going to be a B-side of a single. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, my last advice to him was get that Dancing in the Dark trash off the record and put no <laughs> surrender on you know yeah. that was my that was my sage advice at that point yes. luckily he didn't he didn't listen luckily yeah. but he, he yeah. did put no surrender on the album because I, I thought that was an extremely important song for a lot of reasons and again because it was connected to the past that emotion that warrior like you know emotion yes. that we had fought our whole lives, you know, in that war to make rock and roll, you know, and he has said the reason why I insisted on it because it was more about me than him, you know, <laughs> but, but I, I disagree. I think it was just as much him, but he thought it was a bit of a blast from the past. And so did I, which is why I wanted it on. I thought yeah. the fans are going to love this song. Yeah. You know, this is a fan's song. And ultimately that, that's what I am. So I didn't even know the song. I didn't hear the song. Even when the record came out, you know, I didn't get the record right away. So it was kind of a mystery to me until much later. Right. People said, you know, hey, did you hear the song? He may or may not have written about you. Yeah. And eventually I heard it, you know, and it you know, could, be, could be about me. I've never discussed it with him. You never discussed it with him? No. Really? no. Wow. Can you explain that? Well, why would you? Well, I don't know. You guys hey, are man, about, you guys did, you write that, did you write that song about me? I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to answer mean, that question. I don't mean like, why would you not ask him directly? But I mean, over, you guys have reconciled your best friends, your life, basically best friends for life. I guess I would have thought that it might have come up in conversation at some point. Not that you would have no. tried to pin him down on it, but he might have, he might no, have mentioned it's a, it's, it, noted it. It would, like, be, yeah. it, would, it would be an awkward conversation, which we've okay. never had yeah. and probably never will have. <laughs> so. interesting. I mean, it's interesting to think about it that way, because I, I can see why it would be an awkward conversation if entered into in a very kind of formal way. It'd be very, very weird. It's one of those things that, you know, how I friendships mean, you know, are, you know, these things sometimes pop up. Well, you know, what, what if the conversation was, hey, man, you write that song about me? And, and the answer yeah. is no. No. <laughs> okay. Yes. So that's also a possibility, yeah. you know, yes, to keep in right. mind. <laughs> totally. Totally. That's fair. That's actually, I hadn't really thought about that. Again, I'm just going to read this one little thing from the book because I was a little struck by it, you know, in this context. And then we'll dive into talking about the solo stuff and the politics, which obviously was a great, enormous interest to me. And I'll, I'm going to tell you about the fact that I personally blame you for my 
I believe it was my first arrest, maybe my second. You're responsible for getting me thrown in jail for the first time. But we'll wow. get there. You do say, you do say in the book, on leaving the band, I became persona totally non grata. We didn't publicize any bad blood, not one negative word from either of us. We just said that I left to pursue my own career, but I was seen as a traitor by virtually everybody. People felt they had to choose sides. Guess whose side they chose? I only raise it because it's right there in the book, and some of these words kind of jumped off the page for me. I, I remember at the time recognizing that obviously you had left and and that there probably was a story there. But as you read those words, it highlights an extent to which you felt alienated. Like there was more, I don't want to say bad blood. And I'm not trying to stir up anything here. I'm just trying to say like persona non grata is a pretty like, when you left, you were out. And for that period of time, there was at least a cold war, if not a hot war. Let's put it that way. Is that fair? Yeah. And more so by the people that surrounded him than him. Yeah. You know, I think they just felt that, you know, to show their friendship and loyalty to him, they had to pretty much write me out of history. Not seeing yeah. the possibilities of my career adding and complementing his, which is right. what ended up happening, doing things that he would be very proud of and even participate in, such as Sun City, you know. Yeah. So, you know, that wasn't the thinking. <laughs> the thinking was he's a traitor and has screwed up the possibility, you know, might affect the success of the album and the tour. Right. I, I didn't think I had much in common with Trotsky, but we were both temporarily written out of history. <laughs> I don't think you had much in common with Trotsky. In there, you know, yeah, little, no, no, I like it. A it's a good line. Done. No, it's a good line, dude. It's a good line. I just, there's just, there's these moments in, when that kind of comes through and I think to myself, man, it must have been tough in some ways. And I like that. There's a knowingness in the book where you kind of talk about the way in which, you know, how this business works. And I remember reading this thing when you're talking about what, as you weigh out the costs and benefits or tally it all up, like the, this decision. And you say, who knows what could have been created if I'd had the backing of the masters of the universe who are nothing if not thrilled to invest in the ideas of happy, successful rock stars. There's a savviness kind of about how these spheres of influence work in the business and how like th this is this is a business you know and you say a thing in here about uh this is my other favorite thing in here you say that you're a cautionary tale i'm nothing if not a cautionary tale never ever leave your power base not until you have secured a new one it seems like you know one of the things about this was that you learned a lot you learned a lot, a lot of lessons from the consequences and the after effects of leaving the band the hard is way is that fair Oh, yeah. yeah. It just goes with the territory. So because I was not the successful rock star, because I was the traitor and whatever else I became, any project I've done since has been a struggle. Just uh, looking at the most successful thing I've ever done artistically, the Broadway show, you know, the investors never showed up. Now, would they right. have showed up if I'd stayed in the band? You better believe they would have showed up, okay? Yeah. And there would have been yeah. a line around the block. Now, would I have done that project is another question, you know, if I'd stayed. So it all becomes very uh, what if. And in the end, it, it's silly to contemplate because you can say to yourself, I wish I had done both. I wish I had been able to stay and done all these things, right. you know, sure, and done the solo records and become an artist and, and done Sopranos and Lily Hammer and busted Mandela out of jail and, you know, all right. these things, you know. Uh, but the truth of the matter is none of it probably would have happened. I probably would have well, ended up producing records for people or doing something like that and gotten a yacht and drink uh, pina coladas on the Mediterranean. You know, that's probably more likely what would have happened to me. Drank myself to death on the Mediterranean on my yacht. The image of you, Steve, uh, on a yacht listening to, to Yacht Rock 
with empty bottles everywhere, champagne corks all over the place, mounds of, of cocaine and other drugs. You kind of lying there splayed out dead on the deck of the yacht in a pair of flip-flops and an open robe. Not an image that anyone wants to conjure. So I'm glad we didn't go down that path. It's probably better that we didn't, that we didn't, uh, that's not the way things went. And, you know, in the, the kind of canon of alternative futures, that's best that we avoided that, not just because that would have been a bad outcome, but because what actually then happened is way better and way more interesting than that sort of sad image that you just laid out and that I just <laughs> kind of went a little further on. So there's a lot to talk about, really. And you said earlier in the podcast that the second part of the book and the, really the second act in a way of your life, or maybe the second and third acts of your life is really where things get interesting. And there's so much to talk about there because it's about your politics, which became a dominant part of your life and your art. You're helping to break, as you've said on some occasions, break Nelson Mandela out of jail. Your foray into acting, something that became the center of your life, having no experience, no training, no past resume, nothing. All of a sudden you were on The Sopranos. So there's a lot to talk about there. And then of course, you know, those are all recounted in your book in great detail. And it's really the part that gets, again, as you said earlier, kind of gets to your personal evolution, your growth, and to getting you to be the person that you are today, your post E Street life. So there's a lot to fill up. There's a lot to talk about. We knew we were going to do this as a two-parter, and we are, but it's time now to end part one so that tomorrow we can come back for part two. Everyone, please, guys, listeners, don't think that just because we're leaving the E Street band behind for a while, that this is going to be a less interesting part of this discussion. In fact, I would say, I would guarantee that it's going to be just as interesting and maybe even more interesting as we talk about the second half of Unrequited Infatuations, the second half of the life of the man, the myth, the legend, and our guests this week. Thank God here on Hell and High Water, Stevie Van Zandt. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>